with us here uh, last Sunday, you will know that the Jesus Christ, what he did was spend the last dinner, the last time with his disciples. And Sal, I'm trying to get the, I thought I got the verses to you. And I'm trying to get that to you now. I think I can do that. Five seconds. Well, um, <laughs> I have the verses. Anyways, how about sideways? There it is. Whoops. Uh, for for this for the Passover Sunday when we when we celebrated that the reason we celebrated it was to to show and see where uh, Jesus Christ took the Lord's Supper, and and how he was able to show us. Oops, there it is. How he, he was able to show us what um, where he pulled out the the Lord's Supper, and one of the things that I, I mentioned this last uh, Sunday was that uh, there he goes. Just started. One of the things I mentioned this last Sunday was that it, when uh, when Jesus pulled out the bread and pulled out the juice, most of the time, and, and as well as I, as me, uh, I didn't know how that came about. I always just assumed that Jesus took the bread from, I don't know, the shelf, the cupboard, went to the store, and took the juice, just any old juice or the wine, and he just passed it around. And when he started to explain the Lord's Supper, just like we did, I mean, the uh, Passover, just like we did for Seder. Every year, every year they explain it, they go over it to remember, to go back, to hold on to the heritage, the everything that uh, the Jews have been through. And that afikomen, the bread of affliction, in that cup, specifically, those two items, they, they, they are one right next to the other. And so when, when Jesus, and we were talking about this this last week, when, when Jesus was talking to his disciples and he fed them, uh, he fed them out of uh, five loaves and two fish, and everybody ate, and there was 12 baskets left over. And then the next day they came, and, they, and Jesus says, the reason you're coming to me is because I fed you last, you know, yesterday or last week or whatever, and are you coming back to eat some more food? And they, well, kind of, they said, yeah. And Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. If you want to follow me, you're going to, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now, to us, that sounds kind of like, oh, man, you know, why would you want to say that? It sounds cannibalistic almost. And it sounds almost gross to, be even, to, to even think about that. But you see, for a Jewish person, they understood that Jesus Christ was talking about the bread of affliction and also the cup of redemption. He, they understood that he was talking about those things. And the reason why they turned away and they said this is hard teaching was because he was elevating himself to the point of, being that bread of affliction and that cup. And so, I mean, many people were insulted. They were, you know, I just don't want anything to do with this. And, and you know, you, you just seem to put yourself in a position that only God can be there. And as we know, that's one of the reasons why they crucified Jesus, because he kept saying he was God. He, they, they got him for blasphemy. And, and when we go through this portion of tonight, we start to, we start to realize and look at, okay, Jesus had an agenda. And we know that he had a purpose. He had a goal in mind. As a matter of fact, if you open up your Bibles to Luke chapter nine, I want to start off there in Luke nine, verse 51. And in Luke nine or open up your phones, whichever uh, your favorite, your best and favorite passage or Bible app that you might have on your phone. But in Luke chapter nine, verse 51, 
it starts off like this, and uh, I'll give you a little bit of time to, to get there. But here, the whole narrative changes. For the first eight chapters of Luke, Jesus is doing ministry for three and a half years. And he's doing ministry in, in Luke. The first nine chapters cover that. And from this point forward to, verse, to chapter 24, this is all about the final days of Jesus coming to Jerusalem, pointing toward Jerusalem. And it says right here in 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, that's the ascension, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we see this portion of scripture. We look at what Jesus was doing and we see where he's headed. And for most people of that day, Jerusalem was the ideal place to go. They were going to celebrate the Passover. And they celebrated the Passover in Jerusalem. They brought their lamb, as we saw last week, to Jerusalem. They presented that lamb to the priests. And they, they held on to that lamb until the day of sacrifice. And we know that Jesus himself presented himself on that first day of the week. And he presented himself as the perfect sacrifice. And so, Father, here, prior to getting there on Friday, prior to getting there, he was already focused. He knew he had to do this. And the purpose and the, one, and the question that comes up many times is why? Why would he do this? Well, Lord, we know that he died for our sins. We know that this was purposed by you many years prior to this, from the beginning of eternity. We know that it was all orchestrated by you. Father, but help us to see so that we can get a better glimpse and a more profound understanding of why Jesus Christ died for us. So thank you, Lord, for this time we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we want uh, tonight to be a little bit more abbreviated, and I think I've already taken up more of my time than I should have just by the introduction in the prayer. But I do want to say this. If we look at chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. And if you go over to chapter 13 of Luke, you'll see the same thing, that Jesus Christ, as he's going and ministering and, and taking care of all these uh, the people as he's walking toward Jerusalem in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 13, verse 22, it says here, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Luke makes this distinction. Jesus was not deterred while he was teaching and while he was ministering and he, will, he was journeying toward Jerusalem. If you look at Luke chapter 18, the next chapter in verses 31 through 34, uh, excuse me, 17, 17, 11. That's where we're going. Chapter 17, 11. And it says, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along Samaria and Galilee. He was still going to Jerusalem. Now let's go to the next chapter, chapter 18. Uh, and if you just turn a couple of pages, you'll see it there. In verses 31 through 34, he was going to Jerusalem. And, and here's, here's the important part here, verse 31 through 34. And taking the 12... He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. 
See, God knew why he was going to Jerusalem. Jesus knew why he was going to Jerusalem. The disciples, even though they were told, they did not understand why he was going to Jerusalem. And I think for the most part, a lot of us really don't grasp the understanding or the full meaning of why he had to go to Jerusalem, why he went to the cross. Why is it that, as Ryan was saying, we say this is Good Friday when he was actually uh, battered and, and beat up and flogged, as, as he says here, this is what's going to happen. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on him. And you've seen the passion of the Christ. You've heard the many stories and sermons and messages on how brutal that crucifixion was. And if you know anything about the crucifixion, you know most of it from outside sources. The Bible just tells us that he was crucified, that he was nailed, hands and feet, and he was flogged. But it doesn't go into detail as to how that took place. And, and when you, when you would, were to say in that day, in the situation of life of Jesus Christ, when you would talk about a crucifixion, everybody knew what a crucifixion was. A crucifixion was, they were, they were done almost every day. In the time of Jesus Christ, it is estimated that over 35,000 crucifixions were done. And in one day, there were over 2,500 people that were crucified when Jesus was a child, somewhere around 12 or 15. And so crucifixions didn't need any explanation to people that Luke was writing to. He was crucified. But to us, we, we, don't, know, we don't understand the full meaning of it. But why did he have to go through such a painful death? Why was that something that he had to do? And, and you know, one, one of the things that I have seen, and, and you'll, you'll go through scripture, and I pray that you do this from this point forward, you'll see that he had to die. Jesus died. Jesus was crucified. He was laid down. He laid down his life. And you'll see this, this in Paul's writing. You'll see this in, in Peter's writing, that we were not uh, bought with, uh, with silver and gold or, or metals that would perish, but we were bought with the precious blood of the Lamb. We were purchased. We were redeemed. And, and that, that theme just, just oozes through not only the Old Testament and also through the New Testament. See, Jesus took them aside, and he started to tell them everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets. And so there was this understanding, this knowing of what Jesus Christ or the Messiah would have to go through. And so this understanding that Jesus had related to the apostles, they didn't get it until much later, after the ascension, after Pentecost, after the church started, and then they began to proclaim the gospel. But if you turn with me to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, and this is kind of hidden in there, kind of gives us a little bit of an indication as to why Jesus Christ went to the cross. In Ephesians chapter 5, and some of you probably know this portion of scripture as a marriage uh, counseling or marriage seminar, and we're not going to do a marriage seminar here, talks about husbands and wives. And in verse 25, it says this, it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, husbands ought to love their wives in this manner. And yes, when you take this and you look at it in context, this is what Paul is talking about. However, he makes this, this, this connection with how important that love needs to be from a husband to a wife, where a husband gives himself sacrificially. And Jesus did this, and he did this because he was preparing for himself a bride. 
spotless, blameless, sanctifying her, cleansing her. And Jesus says, God, you promised me, Father, you promised me a bride. And unfortunately, from the time of Adam and on, that bride became defiled. And that defilement of the bride was not going to be a good bride for Jesus Christ. And from Adam on after they sinned, and, and Caleb, he sinned, and Seth, and, and everyone else, they, and the time of Noah, there was a, sin was rampant. God wiped out the world. And from, from that, after, after Noah came up uh, and, and, and multiplied and the people started to gather in, in different places, they built the tower and God confused their language because they were not obeying God. Sin had set in the heart of man. And from that day forward up to today, we see that there is no fear of God. There's no fear of God. And so what Jesus Christ was doing at that point was sanctifying himself a bride. God says, I, I have a bride for you. However, if you want her to be sanctified, if you want her to be your bride, you need to die on the cross. You have to go through this suffering, this shame, this, this wrath of God. See, because God hates sin. And every time that we sin, and, and many people tell me, says, yeah, I really don't, I'm not that bad. I re I'm really not. I'm not bad at all. You know, I mean, every once in a while I do some things, but I do some good things as well. Well, the, the problem is, is that for us to get to heaven, for us to be able to stand in the presence of God and to be joined with him for all eternity is perfection. God says, be holy as I am holy. And we, we learned in the book of Galatians as we've been going through the book that, that if you fail in one commandment, you failed in them all. And, and so when people tell me that, you know, I'm not that bad, I always say, well, have you ever lied? Well, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, just any kind of a lie. Have you ever just done a, a, a fib or a, just a, a white? Yeah, I, I, I've lied. Okay, well, you know, I mean, you shouldn't do that. That's, that's a sin. Have you ever, as a man, have you ever uh, lusted after a woman? If you've lusted after a woman in your heart, the Bible says you've committed adultery. You know, have you ever uh, taken anything that didn't belong to you? A pencil from work, a paperclip, uh, maybe cheated on your taxes a little bit. You know, that, that's stealing. Ha have you ever been angry at somebody to the point where you said, man, I can just kill that person? And I know you won't, but have you ever been upset? The Bible tells us, and Jesus says, that's just like murder. And so when people say, well, yeah, I've done that, and I've done that myself. We've all done that. Well, I can't speak for you, but I know that I've done that. What I have just done is I've just confessed to being a lying, adulterous, thieving murderer. And when we look at sin in that manner, and I think we don't look at sin that way, the Bible says that man is not afraid of God. If you look with me in Romans chapter, uh, chapter 5, Go back to Romans, Romans chapter 5. Let's do chapter 3 first of all. Romans chapter 3, Romans 3.10, and then we'll go to 5. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greek, are under sin. Paul has just went through first chapter, uh, Romans 1, Romans 2, and into Romans 3, proclaiming that, of course, the ungodly, they're not going to make it to heaven. They're not. And the religious, they think that they're going to make it to heaven. 
And, and then the righteous, he says, and even the righteous, they have this against them. And then he goes to chapter, verse 10, and he says, as it is written. And I love what Paul does, but Paul always goes back to the Old Testament. He always goes back to the word. Yes, I understand that you're Jewish. I understand that you're religious. I understand that you're going to church. I understand that you, you're doing the best you can to, to make as many services as, po as possible. You know, I'm here listening to the sermon uh, on Friday night when, as Ryan said, we could be doing something else. I'm here. Uh, I'll be here at sunrise service. I'll be here on Easter as well. You know, because I want to get all my brownie points in. I want to be as, as righteous and as religious as possible. And Paul says, well, that's good that you're doing those things. But let me tell you what the Bible says. Paul says, let me show you what the word of God says. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And here it is. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Beloved, we live in a generation, we live in a society, we live in a time when there is no fear of God. There is fear in people's hearts, but not of God. There's fear of the things that could have happened this last year. It immobilized our country. There is fear of what may happen to people uh, anywhere. It, it, if you go out somewhere, there's fear of the things that could possibly happen. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says this in verse 28. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I know that you've been told, and, and uh, maybe somebody has even preached it and taught this, and, and they say the fear, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. Am I supposed to be afraid of God? No, don't be afraid of God. As a matter of fact, God is your friend. You know, we even sing a song, I am a friend of God. We sing it in God's my friend and, and he approves of my life and him and I, he understands, he knows my heart. He knows my heart inside and what it, what, what's inside my heart. Yes, he does. And the Bible says that your heart is deceitful and beyond cure. It is wicked and it lies to you. He knows me. Yes, he does. He knows you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. God knows you in and out. And, you know, as a matter of fact, I think that God really approves of me. As a matter of fact, every time that I, I win uh, something in the lottery, I say, praise God. Uh, when something good happens, you know, and because those things of good things are happening to me, it, it proves that God loves me. And he's, he's a friend of mine, and, and, he, and I'm a friend of his. And, and therefore, you know, you know, those things that you're talking about, Pastor Sal, cannot be related to me. And we have this idea, we have this... Uh, the message that we preach that God just loves you and he, you, you matter to him and, 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 and those things. And, and it, what it does is it, it softens the blow of sin. And we have a culture that's not afraid of God. Where, in essence, Jesus says, that's who you need to be afraid of. Don't be afraid of the viruses or the thieves or the things around this world. You know, we, we should be weary of those things. We should take care of our, our life and we should take care of our health but to fear 
to stop you in your tracks. That is reserved for God alone. When Isaiah walked into the temple and he saw the presence of God, it just caused a great fear in his life. We have lost the holiness of God. And the holiness of God is not even in the minds of people. We are afraid of offending various groups and different people by the things we do and the things we say. We are so afraid of things in the world, yet no one is afraid of offending God. And please, I don't mean to throw out a blanket statement and include everyone, but for the most part, most people aren't afraid of offending God. And the reason Jesus Christ went to the cross is to help people see that, yes, there is a sin that has to be paid. Somebody has to take care of it. And if you can't do it, which you can't and I can't, that sin cannot be paid unless it takes, it takes care of itself by the way of Jesus Christ. Jesus saw his bride and he said, okay, Lord, um, if this is, you've been requiring my bride every day to give a sacrificial offering every year to bring a yearling lamb every time that they sin they bring a turtle dove or something every time that they offer up something before you lord you've required a blood sacrifice and they can't keep it up and god says no they can't somebody has to pay for that sin and jesus says that's my bride that's my bride, and I'm going to come back for her. I'm going to prepare her, and I'm going to die on the cross for her. And the bride of Christ has been made spotless for those that have committed their life to Jesus Christ. And the commitment that we give to Jesus is evident by the life that you live. You can deceive people. You can fool people. You know, and I heard uh, John MacArthur, I think, this last week, say something to the effect of, you know, I, I thank God for the persecution that's coming because it's going to be able to whittle out all the false Christians, all those that are pretending to be Christians. <laughs> I'm not part of that group. No, I don't mean to offend. We include everyone. And what's going to be left, beloved, is the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ, the one that Jesus Christ died for. Let me take you now to Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, and it says this. For while we were still weak in our sin, in our muck and everything that we are, in our flesh and in our thieving, lying, murderous, adulterous life, at the right time, the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and I, beloved. He died for you and I. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The wrath that is coming. And look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, 
shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This reconciliation comes to reconcile you to God. See, Christianity is the cross and and the gospel and the good news. It's not to reconcile you to yourself. It's not to make you feel better. It's not to show you how to live a a happier life, how to have the best life now. I mean, if you're looking for the best life now, basically, this is all you're going to get, this life right now. Because the life that you're going to get afterward, it's not a good life. It's not about making relationships work within your husband and your wife or your kids. The gospel presentation, the gospel message is about reconciling you to God. Now, out of that, as you know, as many of you that have committed your life to Christ, out of that comes the reconciliation between you and your spouse, you and your children. And you see life differently. You live it with an eternal purpose, knowing that in spite of what might be going on in this world and all the fear that is coming out, coming against you, and all the things that are happening, the wrath of God is being displayed right now, as Paul says. And it's coming. And, and it, will, it will devour th- this fire, this consuming fire. We sing a song, consuming fire, and, and you know, the, the song that is sung sometimes, we, but we need to be careful about that because this consuming fire that the Bible talks about is talking in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 9, talking about this consuming fire that consumed the people for idolatry. And we know that the the Holy Spirit came down and there was tongues of fire upon the apostles. And and I think that's kind of where people are looking at and wanting to that kind of a fire. But when we are calling fire down upon ourselves, we are calling for judgment. We're calling for this consuming fire that God hates evil and he's going to consume it. The wrath of God is coming upon all that evil. And beloved, when you commit your life to Christ, you make this transition into the next life, even while you're here on the planet. See, Jesus Christ took upon himself this cross, took upon this cross the shame, the ridicule, the, 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 all that, and the full weight of God's punishment for you and the rest of the world. And he took upon himself that on the cross. It, it was such a, a powerful, uh, it was such a dramatic event that it just reverberated through all eternity. And the universe just stood still. The sun was dark. And it was dark for three hours. The, the Bible says that the earth shook. And the saints that were dead got up and walked around. And they go, wow, hey, what's going on? Hey, what are you doing here? I, I don't know. I just woke up. Thought you were dead. The Bible says that at that point, there was no more blood sacrifice needed because Jesus Christ fulfilled what was done. If you remember last week, as they finished the slaughtering of the animals, and when they were done, the priest would yell out, Tatalestai, or it is finished. When Jesus yelled that out and he gave up his spirit, he hung his head and he died, The Bible says that the earth shook, the tombs were open, and the curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Josephus, the historian, says that that two horses, that horses could even rip that curtain apart. 
It was 30 feet wide, 30 feet high, four inches thick. And, and this curtain, you know, when we think of, of a curtain, another thing that we have to look at, what does that curtain mean? What, what did it mean at that time? How big was this curtain? We look at a curtain, we think of our own curtains. That we, well, I can rip a curtain in half. Not this one. And God split it from top to bottom, exposing the Holy of Holies and the entrance that we now have for the church, for Jesus Christ's bride, to communicate, to commune, to, to be a part of, to, to be one. We don't need a priest anymore. We don't need the blood sacrifices. We don't need to go to Jerusalem next year. We don't need the lamb that the Jewish people still want to sacrifice. There is an idea of the temple having to be built. The Bible doesn't talk about the temple being built. There's a lot of inference about the temple being built. As, as Daniel had called it, the, the abomination of desolation. The, the sacrifices that they are doing in the temple on the last days. The, uh, the, the Antichrist has to set himself up in the temple. So it is assumed that during the last days, the temple would be erected. And there are a lot of people looking to Jerusalem to see that temple go up. We don't need that temple. We don't need to sacrifice any more lambs. Because Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice. When he went to the cross, had his face to the cross, when he focused upon the cross, he says, I'm going to prepare for me a bride. Now, as a church... And when I say church, not a church building, I say a body, us as believers, as a church. What are we going to do with that information? If Jesus Christ desires to have himself a bride, spotless and clean, what are we going to do? How are we going to prepare ourselves and our loved ones, our family, our neighbors, the people around us? Are we just going to look at them with disdain? Well, you're not part of the bride of Christ, so you can stay away. Or are we going to share with them what Jesus Christ has done for us? You see, in spite of how it is that we teach and believe that everyone has been, that Jesus Christ died for, every person that Jesus Christ has died for has already been selected and predestined. And so therefore, we might as well just give it all up and let God do what he's going to do. He's asked us as a church, as a body, to make that proclamation because faith comes from hearing. And people cannot get that faith, as we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. That faith is not going to come to them until they hear the word of God. And how can they hear if nobody's sent? How can they not be sent if nobody's going to go? And so we are the mouthpiece of God. We are his foot soldiers. We are his workmanship created for good works. And as the church gathers for this weekend you're going to come across a lot of people you'll have a lot of friends a lot of family and people will be talking to you we just need to share what we know jesus jesus christ died for a sinful world you see and, and the gospel message that was proclaimed in the old testament that was proclaimed by the disciples that is being proclaimed even now is this that god is holy he is holy, he is pure, he is perfect, and God cannot see and look upon sin. When God unleashed his wrath upon Jesus Christ, he had to turn his back on his son. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And in his anguish and his pain and, and knowing what he had to go through, he still sensed and felt the separation from God. And God one day is going to separate the world. He's going to take the goats and put them to the left and take the sheep and put them to the right. And it's my responsibility as a pastor not to entertain goats, but to feed the sheep. As he told, as he told uh, Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lamb. And because God is holy, we, we don't stand a chance before him. If we were to stand before God because we are so sinful, as we just said, you know, if you've lied, you're a liar. If you've been angry, you're a murderer. If you've lusted, you're an adulterer. And because we are lying, murderous adulterers, we cannot stand before God. And therefore, my problem is, is that I cannot be perfect anymore. And I've sinned. And the good news is that Jesus Christ prepared himself as a sacrifice to take away my sin. He took on my sin and I took on his righteousness. He imputed his righteousness to me and my sins were imputed to him. And there's that transformation that took place. That I was made righteous. And because of that righteousness that Jesus Christ has placed upon me, my responsibility is to give back to him my life. And there needs to be a change, which is called repentance. Not just a prayer. Not just coming up and saying, okay, I want to say that prayer. How do you say that prayer? What do I have to do? I've been asked, what's that prayer that you have to say to get to heaven? Well, to be honest with you, it's just a matter of what God is doing in your life. The prayer is, Lord, help me to fulfill what you've called me to do. To separate from this world. And to move from this time forward to worshiping and working and relating to God and to other people. It's that separation that, and th that, that repentance in your life that gives the fruit of what Jesus Christ did for you. You need to bear fruit. There needs to be a fruit bearing. Every disciple needs to bear fruit. And the evidence of that is the fruit. What type of fruit are you, bear are you bearing? Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits. And it's not a matter of striving to be perfect. It's not a matter of striving to be good or religious or righteous. It's not a matter of trying to be everything that everyone else can see and look at you and say, well, that person is good. It's a matter of pleasing God and looking upon him and the sacrifice that was laid upon the cross. See, Good Friday does become a good thing. And, and if you can just imagine what the disciples had gone through. You know, even though they were told, Jesus gave them the words of the prophet. Jesus himself told them, I, I must be going to Jerusalem. Yet they saw this ugly, horrific sacrifice, this crucifixion. And yes, they were depleted. And on Sunday morning, early in the morning, as the women went to the tomb, we'll go see, okay, what, what did they go look for? What are they looking at? What are they trying to find? The question will be that Sunday morning, why are you here? What are you doing up so early in the morning to come to church? That's the question. And the answer is, well, I, I've come to worship God. 
and any opportunity that I can get to worship Jesus Christ, I'm going to do it. Whether it's by myself or with others, and, and, and it's beautiful when it's with others. And, and if I can do this at least once a year, I'd like to do it every morning. My grandson calls me every once in a while. And he says, Grandpa, what are you doing? I says, well, guess what I'm doing? Calls me in the morning. You're looking at your mountain. <laughs> I have the windows open. I'm looking, over, I'm looking at that mountain over there. I think that's, that's Big Bear. No, Mount Baldy. And, and you can see it from my window real clear. It's real good, especially on a clear day. Uh, and, and I'm looking at, I'm, I'm meditating. I'm praying. I'm, I'm talking to God. And he says, you're looking at your mountain. I says, yeah, that's what I'm doing. And so this morning, he spent the night last night. He gets up real early in the morning. Let's look at your mountain. All right, well, let's do that. And this is how I do it. You know, I, I, I gather, I get up early in the morning. I want to pray. I, I focus. I, I look at. And, and so we're, I'm teaching him how to do the same thing. And I pray that as he grows, he picks up that habit. And I know it's something that's going to have to be worked in his life. Can't say that he's going to do it all the time. I don't even do it all the time. But that's my desire. My desire is to come to know Jesus Christ just a little bit more every day. Whether it's with you, whether it's by myself, but better when we have more people. So being here tonight, I pray, would help you to see that, that the cross is more than just a, an emblem, a, a, a trophy, a, something that you hang up on your wall, you wear on your necklace. It's more than that. It is what Jesus Christ did for you to cause you to be and to make you to be a spotless, clean bride. Let me ask you to stand. Father in heaven, I, I want to thank you once again for the opportunity you give us. Thank you, Father, for, for just what you do in our life and how you orchestrate things. And I know that each one of us are here out of a commitment or out of a decision that we made. And that's what we think. But, Father, you brought us here for a very specific reason. And I pray that somewhere along that message, there was a verse, a word, something that we can just take home and, and to be able to grow with that. Lord, we are sinful people. And our conscience tells us so. But our conscience is not just to make us feel bad. It's not to make us feel terrible about what kind of terrible people we are. It is, it is a gift that you've given us to be able to gauge our life into pleasing you and only you. And Lord, I pray that you use our conscience, that it does not get seared to where it no longer causes us, Holy Spirit, to respond to you and help us understand that we are sinners and we solely live by your grace and grace alone. And because we live by your grace and grace alone, our devotion needs to be to you and you alone. As we go from this place, help us to understand that our life is yours, that our devotion is to you, that our desire is for you, that our desire for holiness is the biggest and the most important decision that we'll ever make. Father, help us as we move forward from this place to accomplish that which you've given us 
and to share this good news with more people. That is the good news of the cross. So thank you, Lord, once again, we pray. In Jesus' name, and everyone says, amen and amen. Shalom, mi homie.